0: Good morning. Good morning. We have the opportunity, the next little bit here, to do a Bible study. And I've asked uh, Dr. Wycliffe to have our PowerPoint going, so we'll be using that. My name is Dr. Fred Bischoff, and I'd like to do a study with you in 1 John chapter 4. I've entitled that study, Beloved let us love taken from the passage itself since i'm going to be using the screen along with you i'm going to turn the podium a little bit here 1 john chapter 4 you might want to have your bibles open we'll be using as well on the screen to make our key points before we get into that i would like to share with you some key points that has i found very helpful very useful very practical In Bible study. Number one, since the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is vital that we, before we study, ask for the Spirit to guide us and listen to him as he's talking to us. So before we go any farther, let's do that. Father, as we come to open your word We ask for your spirit to guide the same spirit that spoke to John that impressed him with the thoughts that he recorded. We ask for his presence to be made manifest here. May our hearts be open to hear him speak and sensitive to his promptings. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Number two, as we study scripture, we must see that Jesus is the center of it. If we're studying a passage in Scripture and we cannot see Jesus, we have not understood that passage correctly. Number three, as we study, we must look for themes. Themes are topics, subjects, that tie passages together. Very, very important in order to understand because there are themes that run through all of Scripture Even though Scripture is written by multiple authors, it has the same themes running through it. And unless we understand that, unless we look for those themes, we will not be able to see everything God has for us in Scripture. Number four, definitions. Very, very vital. What do words mean? Particularly when we find a word that we have not encountered before or a word that we don't know how it fits in the setting What do the definitions of words mean? We need to look them up. Number five, connections. This is a little bit related to number three, but connections are more distinct connections between the verse we're studying and another verse. Usually what connects are the themes, but sometimes they're actually the words themselves. We need to discover the connections through Scripture and we need to explore them. As you learn to do this, you will find that you actually have to stop at some point because the connections are so are so numerous that, as we say, you start chasing so many different trails, you lose track of where you started. But yet, connections are vitally important, and we need to learn, discover and, and explore them. Number six, very, very important, applications. We need to see. The application of scripture to our own lives, to the practical situations in which we live and interact with other people. We need to see them and we need to live the application as well. And a part of that living is to share them with others. What you have received, you must pass on. And number seven, let us not forget that part of Bible study is thankfulness. We must express thanks to God for the blessing of his word, for the power that's in it, for what the Holy Spirit is teaching us as we go through these things. I would highly recommend these as guidelines as you study scripture. Let's, let's try it now as we look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit. But try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. This word try means test, examine, prove, scrutinize, check it out. Because everything you hear, every spirit that you encounter in this world is not of God. Notice the word spirits. It says, according to 1 Corinthians 2.12, these spirits are not all of God. Sometimes they they are of the world. The key phrase in defining the spirits is the spirit of God. The contrast are the false prophets mentioned there in the verse. False prophets clearly are those who claim to speak for God but do not. They're not speaking for God. Verse number 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus is come in the flesh is of God. Notice again the phrase that we saw in the first verse, of God. The essential qualifying phrase to identify the Spirit, to identify the prophet of God. If it is of God, it will be. Confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, we can look at some other passages. We won't take time because of our uh, limit this morning, but I would encourage you to look up these verses. Uh, Again, connections with other passages in Scripture Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, and 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2. Texts that clearly talk about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. We probably all believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth. He became a human being. But what is it really saying? What spirit, I would like to ask, what spirit was revealed by Jesus Christ coming in the flesh? Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, very clearly identifies for us what spirit that is. That passage tells us that we are to have the mind of Christ. And it tells us what the mind of Christ was. Jesus Christ, who was in the form of God, He was very God. He did not grasp His position as God, but He humbled Himself. The passage says He emptied Himself and He became a human being. What spirit is that? It is the spirit of humility. As we heard last night, the spirit of self-denial. The spirit of being willing to go down. That is the spirit that's identified by someone confessing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That is the key spirit that is being identified. Now, we could explore, perhaps at another time, how far he came. How far down did he come? How far up was he when he he was in heaven? All very fruitful areas of study. But the core spirit is the spirit that's revealed of humbling yourself, going down, going down. Verse number three, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. He is teaching, John here is teaching by repetition and by contrast. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it, it should come and even now already is it in the world notice the contrast of what we saw before the spirit of god we have the spirit that is not of god so we're immediately looking to contrast it and it says very plainly that it is of antichrist there's three other three other texts in the bible that use the term antichrist two of them are in the same letter 1 john 2 verses 18 and 22. The third one is in John's second epistle, 2 John, verse 7. The word Antichrist, very clearly, is someone who is the opposite of Christ, someone who wants to take his place, someone who is showing the opposite spirit. Matthew 24, verse 24, also warns us of this spirit, where it says, There are many false prophets gone out into the world. Notice the first verse that we looked at spoke of these false prophets. The false prophets clearly are of a spirit that is not of God. It is of Antichrist. Verse number four. Ye are of God. Notice again his theme here. Of God, of God, not of God. Let's not miss that. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Notice again, of God. And notice the little phrase, the endearing phrase, little children. The very first use of that is in John 13, verse 33. The phrase that Christ used in talking with his disciples. Little children, little children. But what about this overcome? What about this overcome? Overcome. And this word greater, we need to to spend a little time on that because it is vital to our theme. It is vital to understanding what John is picturing here in this passage. Matthew 23, verse 11, is a passage where Christ is addressing his disciples. His disciples, the three and a half years that they walked with him, worked with him, went out and preached for him. These disciples had a favorite topic that they discussed among themselves. Does anybody know what that topic was? Who is the greatest? Okay. And do you think that they were trying to figure that out so somebody else could be great? No. They were trying to figure that out so that which of them could be greatest, right? Amazing. And in fact, if you look carefully at the Bible story, the gospel story, even at the Last Supper, with Jesus, just before his trial and crucifixion, it says there was a discussion among them as to who was the greatest. Amazing. Amazing. So Christ repeatedly, in these passages that I've given you here, Matthew 23, 11, Luke 22, verse 27, John 16, verse 33, Christ says to them, listen, do you know what true greatness really is? True greatness is not to have someone else serve you. True greatness is for you to serve. Because Christ said, Do you know who I am? They realized that he was God. But yet they had not grasped the reality of what he was doing. He said, I am among you as one that serves. And what did he do at the last supper to prove that? He bent bent down and he washed their feet. This is what John is talking about when he talks about greater. He's not talking about physical might, physical power, some position of great authority and dominance. He's talking about the greater position of character. That is also what John is talking about when he says... You have overcome them. Because Christ overcame, how? Christ said in John 16, verse 33, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. How did Christ overcome the world? It was by revealing the character of his Father, the character of humility. Christ overcame by going down. Christ overcame by humbling himself. Christ overcame by denying himself as we heard very powerfully last evening. That is how he overcame. And he, he, how far did he go down? Our passage in Philippians 2 said, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is the greatness that overcomes. This is what John's talking about when he writes to the little children. You have overcome them because they had grasped the spirit of God of Christ. And and knew what it is that overcomes the world. Notice he says, greater is he that is in you. Christ expressed desire. John 14 verses 17 and 20. Christ expressed desire. This has been the desire of God since he created intelligent beings. Is that each of them would be a dwelling place for him. That he could dwell in each of their hearts. That he could be seen in in the lives of each one. A spirit of self-sacrificing love, as we're going to see. Verse number five. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Notice twice, of the world, of the world. You know, this is a phrase that is clearly in contrast to of God. This is more akin to what we saw of Antichrist, right? But don't forget that this world that is in contrast to God, that is contrary to God's spirit, this world, John 3.16, says God loved. God so loved that he came in the person of his son to rescue those who were caught in this world system. Notice also that we have some pronouns here. They and them. These are plural, right? Who, who are they? And who is them? It seems clearly that it's talking clear back to verse 1, the last plural noun, the false prophets who speak of the world. They're not of God. And Notice. It says the world hears them. Hear means you are willing to listen. In the Bible's terminology, that's what the word hear means. When it says hear the Lord, it means listen to him. Don't just hear some words. Listen to him. Have your heart open to hear what he has to say. But they are listening to the wrong spirit. But John says in verse 6, We are of God. He that knoweth God... Heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Do you see what he's doing? Again, he's teaching by contrast. Contrast, contrasting. Of God versus not of God. Of truth versus of error. Notice also that he says that those that know God. Hear us. When people know what God is really like, when they recognize his true character as revealed to us in Jesus Christ, they recognize his voice, no matter who's speaking. No matter who's speaking. Notice again the contrasting spirits as a way of summary of what we've seen so far. Of God, of Antichrist, of the world, false prophets, of truth and of error, One confesses Jesus, not just the name Jesus, but the essence of who he is, his character. They don't just confess him in their words, they confess him in their lives. They reflect his character, just like Jesus, as we heard last night. They reflect who Jesus is. The others do not. The Spirit of God hears his voice, even when he's speaking through others, The spirit of the world of Antichrist hears us not. But notice what John says. Which is greater? Which overcomes? See, the whole story of Scripture is the story of a battle, right? It's a battle between truth and error. And we know the end of the story, right? The end of the story is at the end of the Bible. And it's mentioned elsewhere, too. And who overcomes? It says the lamb overcomes this picture of Jesus Christ as the sacrificial animal going down, humbling himself. The greatest power in the universe is not a power of pride. Contrary to what that bumper sticker says that you see, the greatest power is not the power of pride. It is the power of humility, the power of self-sacrificing love. That is what has made this country great. When we give up on that principle... We will no longer be great. Verse number seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Notice again this endearing term, somewhat like little children. This word beloved. Beloved means someone who is loved. Do you realize that you're loved? This phrase, this adjective, is used in the Gospels only of Jesus Christ. Amazing. And if you look through all the four Gospels, probably the key passage where it occurs is Matthew 3.17. You remember the story. Jesus is at the Jordan River. He has been baptized. Reluctantly by John. Because John knew this man needed no baptism. But Christ says, yes. I have identified with human beings. I'm going to to take their place. Baptize me. And as he came up out of the water and knelt to pray, what was the voice from heaven saying? This is my beloved son. That's the first uh, use there. Powerful picture of Christ. Do you know how this word is used throughout the rest the uh, rest of the New Testament outside the Gospels? It is used of fellow Christians, except for just one time. Does that tell us something? That we're to view one another as God views his own son. Beloved. Beloved. The use of the New Testament teaches us a vital sequence. Let's spend some little time. This, this verse we're going to spend a little time on, verse 7. This sequence we, we're going to see. In the New Testament, the use of this word teaches us that first, God reveals his love of humanity. Humanity. By sending his son as a human and declaring this human, his son, in the flesh as my beloved. The father looks at this human being, this man who grew up in Nazareth from a little boy grew up to manhood. He looks at him and he says, this is my beloved. That is primary. That is first. This love, as we've mentioned, is what type of love? A self-sacrificing love. The type of love that would lead Jesus to leave heaven. We don't realize how far he came. We will never realize how far he came until we get there. And then we'll say, he came that far? He came from such a place as this down to this dark world? What a self-sacrificing love. And it was revealed to us. The heart of the Father he gave. As we heard, he did not Loan him. He gave him. Only after grasping this revelation that Jesus is human, that the Father loves him, and that he loves us as he loves the Son, only after we grasp that revelation can we understand how to call each other beloved and mean it. Do you see the sequence? It's a vital sequence. God's love comes first. Our love is a response. So number seven, again, beloved, let us love one another. This, this New Testament sequence we've been looking at is right here. Do you see it? Beloved, let us love. You must first be loved before you can love. And God has first loved us. So we are thus enabled to love. You do not know how to do this on your own. You have lost it. We have all lost it. This thing called sin has taken this ability from us. And so God has had to come down to show us it, to restore that to us. A common misunderstanding is that you must love yourself before you can love. Very common misunderstanding. It's actually a misapplication of, of Matthew 20, 22, 39. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What did Christ mean in this verse where he said, as yourself? Let's explore that. We have to see this when we understand some other texts that speak about loving as. And the key text is John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Do you notice that? To love our neighbors as ourselves is to love as Christ has loved us. How did Christ love us? Do you see that? Very plainly, loving your neighbor as yourself is loving as Christ loved us. And again, the question is, how did He love us? We've already looked at it. Galatians 2 verse 20, He loved us And he did what? He gave himself. That is how you love as yourself. You give yourself. That's what the the, the commandment is talking about. So the only basis for love as yourself means as Christ loved you. It means to give yourself. It would be an impossibility and a contradiction for God to ask us to love, to use love for ourselves as a model for us to love others. Number one, love for ourselves is not a secure foundation. It was the very beginning of this battle that we're talking about. How in the world can that be a foundation for us to know how to love others? Number two, this self love is at war with self sacrificing love. That is the war if you look at it. In its essence, the peril of self-love is shown to us in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Lovers of their own selves. The alternative that brings eternal security to the universe during the perilous times in which we live is, notice, let's contrast by saying the opposite, men Shall be beloved of God and shall love one another. So 1 John 4 7 clearly fits the Bible pattern of truth. Number one, first of all, we're loved of God, beloved. And then, number two, we are enabled to love others. Let us love one another. How simple and yet how profound. This is the simplicity of the gospel. The complexity is that this applies to every area of your life, every area of my life. It meets every situation that I'm in and that you're in. God is the source, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knows God. Notice again, the verse says it, of God, twice to emphasize the lesson. Moving on, verse number 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Are you lacking in true, other-centered love? Are you willing to raise your hand? Are you lacking that? If we know ourselves, all of us have none of it in ourselves. If we have any of it, it's come from Him. The solution to our lack is to enter into an intimate knowledge of God, his love for you and for all of humanity. Only then can you realize your value and the value of everyone around you when we see the love of God. By beholding him, by beholding Jesus Christ, you are changed. You're changed into the same image. Verse 9 In this was manifest the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Do you see the same theme there? This is is the love. This is how love was manifested. The gift of Jesus Christ to the world is the true measure of love. There is no other measure that equals this measure. Not only do we grasp love as we look at Jesus Christ, The verse says what? We find life itself. Do you realize that true love is life? True love is life. It says we live through him. Christ then is the gift of the Father to us of love and of life itself. Verse 10, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I label this getting it straight. Do you see what he's doing? He's teaching again by contrast. He's saying, where do we find love? Not in our love to God. That is not where we find love. We, go, we find it first where? We find it in that he loved us. You notice, remember the two great commandments that Jesus taught? For us to love God and to love our neighbors. These are only possible. These are only possible for us because of God's love that proceeds all of love. That is how that is restored to us. What about this word propitiation? We find that back in the chapter 2, verse 2, where John says Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. See, unless we see that Christ died for the sins of the world, we're going to have a hard time with our neighbor's sins, particularly if those sins are against us. But if Jesus is the propitiation for those sins, as well as my sins, then I realize that I'm in the same boat as my neighbor. Propitiation, we could study that at some other time. It's a very... Powerful word that speaks about mercy and justice being met. Keeping the sinner alive and yet vindicating the law of God. Justice is still there. Justice has not been destroyed. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. What has God done? We are beloved. God has so loved us. What are we called to do? Also. You notice that word also. Also. That means with the same love, to love one another. Verse 12, no man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. More important than physically seeing God is being like him. Is being like him. The only way, if we study carefully what's coming in the future... The only way to survive the awesome energy of God's very presence is to be prepared for it by his dwelling in us, by his perfected love in us. And John says this very plainly where we're going. Verse 13, Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Again, the evident sequence that we see here. He loved us. We grasp that love and reflect it. We thus abide remain in him and he in us and the spirit leads us into the truth of all three of those it is thus that as he says in this verse we know by experience our position in him verse 14 and we have seen and do testify that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world who do you think john is talking about here when he says we I think he's talking about particularly of himself and those that were with him, with Jesus. Tracing it back to the source again, the Father sent the Son. The Son was sent the Savior of the world. He is a non-exclusive Savior. If you want to look at that, look at John chapter 4, this story of the woman at the well, and see what this woman declared after she met Jesus and what the... Samaritans declared at the end of chapter 4. We won't go there now. But notice that John was an eyewitness to what he's talking about. We have seen John was bearing testimony, testifying to that. Verse 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Notice the confession. This is just like verse 2, and where it says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and that he is the Son of God. Same thing. Dwelling, this also is like verse 12. If we love one another, then God dwells in us. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 16. We have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love. He that dwells in love dwells in God, in God, in him. Again, the source, the love that God has to us, the source God, his love. The response, we know and believe. We dwell in love. This word dwell means to abide, to remain. If we do this, what is the result? Verse 17, very powerful verse, very important verse, as we look to the future. Herein is our love made perfect. Not that that, herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Love being made perfect is used three other times. Chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 12, and chapter 4, verse 18. We could say that this love, perfect love, is mature love. When you're grown up, this is what you will do. When you are fully restored to God's image, this is what people are going to see. Boldness. John uses this word three other times. 2:28, 3:21, 5:14, 2:28, 3:21, 5:14, and there it's called confidence. Do you lack confidence? This is how it comes. This is how it comes by understanding the sequence we've been looking at. The word "perfect" goes goes along with the day of judgment. Do you notice that? Because both of these words speak about the end of a process. The end of a process. And notice this also, he says, because as he is, so are we in this world. This is a very important uh, understanding in this verse. This as so, as so, is a grammatical construction where John is drawing a lesson by comparison. As so. John uses it frequently to teach us God's purpose for us. As he is, God is love, right? Verse 16 has told us that. How does this love stand in the judgment? Here's how it stands in the judgment. It says in verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Fear, notice it there, it's four times in that verse. Fear reveals the basic dynamic in the battle between self-sacrificing love and self-love. Are you aware of that? Fear reveals that basic dynamic. Self-love breeds fear. Do you remember the story? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned. What was their immediate emotion? Fear. They ran and hid. Self-love breeds fear and insecurity. And it destroys relationships. Other-centered love alone survives. This is what it means by standing in the day of judgment. The day of judgment is when we will each fully experience what we have chosen and developed. I will give to each man according as his work shall be. Be not deceived, God has not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The day of judgment is going to be what you, when you receive what you have chosen and developed. So, let's contrast these. Self-love and other-centered love. Fear, boldness. Torment, rejoicing. Desolation, unity. Death, life. See, John is trying to make it simple for us. Laying these things side by side. The casting out of fear, the mature other-centered love, is willing to give all of self for the other. Is that not what Jesus taught us by his life? In a God-centered manner, this is mature, other-centered love. And again, we contrast Adam and Eve. If one has, at a deep spiritual and emotional level, given all of self, what can make him fearful? What can you be afraid of? If you've given all, there's no fear. Fear is cast out. There's nothing more to lose. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Again, the source, he first loved us. John is repeating the lesson for us that he's dealt with from the beginning. He gave all to us. The response, we love him. We give all. Have you given all? He gave all. Have you given all? Have I given all? That's the question that we face. Verse 20, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother. Ah, here's where the test comes, right? You can say it pretty easily. But John says, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Verse 19 said, we love him. Notice that? Here John is showing you how to test that claim. How do you test the claim that you love God? What do you do with your fellow man? Other-centered love is not centered alone on God. He is connected to all. Verse 21, this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves, loveth God loveth his brother also. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 40 on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you're studying the law and the prophets, if you're studying the five books of Moses, if you're studying the prophets, Daniel, and the book of Revelation, and you do not see these two principles, you have not understood those books. They hang on these principles, these principles that we've been looking at. The law and the gospel are intensely practical. A very powerful statement that speaks about this also. The truths of the word of God meet man's greatest practical necessity, the conversion of the soul through faith. These grand principles are not to be thought too pure and holy to be brought into the daily life. They are truths which reach to heaven and compass eternity, yet their vital influence is to be woven into the human experience. Can you see the practicality of that little chapter we've studied in John? Can we see the importance of realizing the source of our love and of our life and of reflecting that to others? Is it your desire that you let God reveal that in your life? Amen. Let us pray to close. Father, as we spent some time today looking at this this simple chapter in John's letter, we've seen some profound truths that touch to the heart of our existence, of this battle that we're each in. Teach us to realize the degree to which you have loved us. And Lord, reproduce that love in our hearts for you and for others. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.